Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, consider the time of your calling. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in his presence. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. These are God's own words to us. Let's pray. Dear Father, this morning, we want to learn from your word. You alone know all things, and you alone possess all wisdom. Teach us to recognize the ignorance and foolishness of the world, and then teach us to trust you, to entrust ourselves to you, the only wise God. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins verse 18 saying, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Then in verse 23, he says that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In chapter two, verse 14, he says, the natural man does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Then in chapter three, Verses 19 and 20, he says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, and the thoughts of the wise are futile. In fact, in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions wisdom, or the wise, 26 times. 
and fools or foolishness nine times. So what's going on here? Paul is teaching the church in Corinth that God's perfect plan of salvation doesn't make sense to those who are lost. They don't have the mind of Christ, so the gospel sounds crazy to them. What do you mean the creator of the universe became a poor Hebrew peasant? And what does his death have to do with us anyways? And he came back to life? Yeah, right. And yet, once someone has entrusted themselves to God through faith, once the Holy Spirit has given them a new heart and new mind, the lights come on. Gradually, they understand that God's way of rescuing his enemies from hell is absolutely brilliant. In the birth and life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus, the infinite wisdom and power of God are revealed. And it's nothing at all like the so-called wisdom of the world. For most of our lives, my wife and I have been either students or teachers. Universities and grad schools are full of people with all sorts of degrees and titles and lots of publications. And yet we have encountered just as much foolishness on those campuses as anywhere else. Scholars acquire mountains of data and knowledge and likely even some understanding. But true wisdom is nowhere to be found because they're not looking to get it from God, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. In our remaining time, rather than digging into those verses in 1 Corinthians, I'd like us to step back a bit and consider the knowledge and wisdom of God. Truly, he is the only source of all genuine wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Before I finish though, we will get back to the wisdom of the cross. In Romans 11:33, Paul praises God saying, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And in Psalm 147:5, we read, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. This means that God's knowledge is both qualitatively and quantitatively distinct from ours. We must be careful not to think that God simply knows a lot more than we do. Like a professor knows more about some academic subject than her students do. No, the first fundamental truth about God's knowledge is his omniscience, that he knows and understands everything there is to know about everything. How much does a mosquito weigh? He knows that. What did Chester Nimitz have for supper on April 3rd, 1942? He knows that. He knows trivia and he knows what really matters because his knowledge is infinite. In scripture, seeing often represents knowing. An example of this is found in Job 24 verses 20, uh, Job 28 verses 20 to 24, which says, 
Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. The clear implication here is that God has wisdom and understanding, partly because he sees and knows everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But God doesn't merely see, he watches. Seeing is passive. Normally, whenever we open our eyes, they gather light and images which enter our brains. But watching is more active. It includes thinking about what we are seeing. When I hunt elk, my eyes and brain actively scan or watch or look for elk. I willingly focus upon what's in the woods around me. The Bible often portrays God not just seeing, but actively looking or watching. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And Psalm 121 verse 8 says, The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. These two phrases, throughout the earth and both now and forevermore, mean that God is watching everywhere and all the time. That means infinite knowledge. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. This truth troubles those who love their sin. But to those who love God, his watchful care is a great relief to them. Hear how David describes what a comfort this is in Psalm 33, 18-20. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. The Bible also contains many examples of God knowing what is invisible to us, such as what is in people's hearts and minds. In the first verses of Psalm 139, the psalmist says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. And in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, King David tells his son, the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. He knows and understands us inside and out. A huge difference between our seeing and knowing versus God's seeing and knowing is that God understands everything that he sees. A few weeks ago, Beth and I had an Iranian friend watch a football game with us. After patiently watching a while, he confessed that he had no idea what was going on. 
He could see as well as we could see, but it meant very little to him. I tried to explain, but every word, such as tight end, hike, touchback, punt, lateral, fumble, each word had to be explained with other terms that he didn't know. God is never puzzled by what he sees. Even before God sees me do anything, he already knows and understands all of my motives, all of my intentions. He knows what happened last time, whether I will succeed or fail in trying to do it this time, how the results will affect me and others. He understands all those things even before I do anything at all. God's knowledge is not limited to the present, for he also knows everything that is past and future. When the Bible speaks of God knowing the past, it often uses the English word remember, either zakar in Hebrew or mimneskomai in Greek. This does not mean, of course, that God ever forgets anything. Rather, context plus many examples show us that remember means that God turns his attention to something in the past before acting in the present. In every case, remember is followed by some action, often a miraculous intervention. In Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. In Exodus 2.24, when the Israelites cry out to God to deliver them from slavery, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So he used Moses to set them free. God even knows or remembers events in the very distant past, before the universe existed, something the Bible mentions more than once. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He knew us before the world even existed. Our knowledge is almost totally limited to things in the recent past, though we do know some things about the present. You know that you're sitting on that chair in this room. Still, we can't say that we know anything about the future, for everything could change. When I woke up yesterday morning, I had no idea I would be preaching today. <laughs> Unexpected things happen. No matter how we plan, Proverbs 27.1 says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. But when God says anything about the future, he is stating a solid fact. It's not a prediction. Everything God says about the future is fact. Scripture contains numerous examples of God stating facts about the future. In Isaiah 45.1, we read this prophecy. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I, have, I will take hold of to subdue nations. 
before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. God then goes on to state that he will use Cyrus to liberate Israel. Most remarkable about this is that Isaiah wrote these words 150 years before Cyrus the Great of Persia was born. God stated the fact that Cyrus, by name, that Cyrus would overthrow Babylon and that he would free the captive Jews to return to Jerusalem. This is just one of roughly 2,000 biblical prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Many other examples reveal God's omniscience. More than once, scripture says that he knows every hair on our heads. And Psalm 147.4 says, he determines the number of the stars and calls each of them by name. Astronomers say that the universe has hundreds of billions of galaxies, and each galaxy has thousands or even millions of stars in them. It is therefore completely reasonable to claim that God knows every living creature. Plankton, insects, fish, birds, mammals, reptiles, all creatures. He knows, understands, and cares for his creatures. Psalm 139 verse 6 says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. God's infinite knowledge means that we can trust him. There are myriad situations in which people let us down and disappoint us because of what they don't know. God does not have this problem. Because he knows and understands our hearts, our minds, our daily lives, we never need to explain anything about ourselves to him. He already knows and he already cares. So that's a brief look at God's knowledge. Let's move on to his wisdom. By wisdom, scripture teaches that God knows, chooses, and achieves perfect ends by perfect means. Again, he knows, chooses, and achieves perfect ends by perfect means. When God does anything whatsoever, there exists no better way to do it. There may be other ways, but he does everything the best way, always. So many times when God answers our prayers, he doesn't just figure out some reasonable way to make it happen. His solution is absolutely, amazingly perfect. Perfect here means far more than what is smartest or most efficient. It also entails moral perfection. His wisdom is in total harmony with his holiness and his love. James 3.17 says, the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now Satan and his demons are cunning and shrewd, 
but their cleverness is always used for harm, to steal, kill, and destroy, the opposite of God's holy, loving wisdom. If, God, if God's wisdom works toward a perfect end, what is that perfect end? It is a creation in which everything glorifies him. Everything should glorify God. Our fallen minds might think it strange that he wants everyone to glorify him. Maybe like some sort of egomaniac who demands attention and praise. We feel this way though because we're accustomed to people who don't deserve praise the way that God deserves praise. Revelation 4.11 says, you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. God wants us to glorify the only entity in the universe that is actually worthy of glory, himself. That is creation's highest good and nothing is more important. In Isaiah 43, verses 7 and 21, both say that God has created us to glorify him, and that is still his purpose for us now. You could say that's why we exist. If we seek to live for any other purpose, it doesn't go well. And if we give glory to anyone or anything else, we are sinning both by idolatry and by lying. Here's an interesting fact. Any true statement about God will always necessarily be praise because there are no bad truths about God. So when God works in creation for his own glory, he is also pursuing truth. And he wants us to pursue that same truth with him. When we give God glory, we're doing exactly what we were created to do. In the Bible and in our experience, we can see God's wisdom in his creation, in his dealings with people, in his sovereign control of world history, but most of all in the gospel, his wonderful plan for our rescue through Jesus. Proverbs 3.19 speaks to us about creation when it says, by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding he set the heavens in place. And again in Psalm 104 verse 24, the writer says, how many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Observe God's creation, and you will see myriad examples of his wisdom in its complexity, in its beauty, and in its interrelatedness. One illustration of this is in the many symbiotic relations observed among his countless different animals. In Africa, for example, birds called oxpeckers are often seen riding on zebras or buffaloes or elephants. 
The birds feed on parasites, such as ticks. This benefits both the bird and the buffalo. Similar symbiotic relations also occur underwater between clownfish, think of Nemo, between clownfish and sea anemones, each one helping the other in several ways. Evolutionists will claim these creatures evolved such interconnectedness by sheer chance over millions of years, but we know better. God's brilliant designs among creatures as well as within each creature infinitely exceed anything that mere accidents could ever produce over time. Only an infinitely wise God could have designed and created the human body. For example, the human eye, which can detect tiny differences in color, texture, movement, or distance. Our human hands, which can play exquisite music on the piano, or violin, or flute, or feel the difference between straight and curly hair, or sense whether bread dough is too moist or too dry for baking, all that with our hand. If we read every textbook ever written in biology, zoology, microbiology, anatomy and physiology, medicine, veterinary science, botany, ornithology, ichthyology, entomology, and ecology, we would still just be scratching the surface of all the wonders of God's living creations. We think we're pretty clever if we discover something about God's creation, but he designed and created it all from nothing by speaking it into existence. For this, he deserves infinite praise. God's wisdom is also clear in his dealings with people, not just among populations, but in how he loves individual persons. The stories of Abraham, Hannah, David, Mary, and Peter, for example, reveal God's wisdom and love long ago. But his wisdom is still at work here and now among us. I enjoy reading the biographies of persons that God loved, rescued, and guided in more recent times. John Newton, C.S. Lewis, Isabel Kuhn, Shao Ah, Dawson Trotman, Charles Colson, Nian Chung, Elizabeth Elliot, Ben Carson, Joni Erickson Tata, even my own grandparents and parents and in-laws. God also deserves endless praise for each person that he rescues. The Lord's work in those lives demonstrates his infinite wisdom, but that doesn't mean his people are always happy and safe, does it? Some do suffer a lot. In God's dealings with us, we mustn't fall into the silliness of thinking his main purpose for us is to make us happy. He has higher goals in mind. Our maturity and his kingdom are more important than our pleasure. And our joy will be so much greater by knowing and loving God 
than by enjoying comfort. James 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Allow perseverance to finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is wise in using various trials to make us more like Jesus, a far better goal than merely making us comfortable. When we suffer, many of us may think, wait, I don't want to be mature or Christ-like. I just want the pain to stop. One job in the world is enough. Because, because God knows us perfectly and because he loves us infinitely, we can trust him to permit only as much pain as is necessary for our growth. He is compassionate, he is with us, and he does not take our suffering lightly. In his infinite wisdom and love, God always gives us exactly the right mixture of joy and sorrow, of blessing and adversity that will enable us to grow more like Jesus. We want a different mix, one with more pleasure and less pain. That is a natural desire. In Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus showed his humanity when before he went to the cross, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It is natural for us to want more comfort and less suffering. When we do suffer, God calls us to trust him, trusting that he knows best and is motivated by wisdom and love. In Psalm 18, verse 30, David says, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. Although we would prefer that God shield us from all suffering, his wisdom means that sometimes he shields us within our suffering. In trials, we are prone to ask, why? Because we usually can't see how our adversity either benefits us or glorifies God. If we could see and know what God was doing, that might make our suffering more tolerable. But then our trust in him would be based on sight, not on faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, we live by faith, not by sight. And in John 20, verse 29, Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The book of Job does not end with clear answers for why he has suffered. Job never says, oh, now I get it. Nor does God make an effort to explain his will to Job. He simply reminds Job of who he is, infinite in power and wisdom. Job grows in humble faith 
willing to patiently wait for God to reveal his perfect will. In Psalm 130, verse 5, the writer says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I put my hope. To experience peace in our adversity, our trust in God's wisdom needs to grow until, like Job, we can stop asking why and just silently wait in faith. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. God also reveals his wisdom in how he directs world history. Daniel 4:32 says, The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Time and again in scripture, God uses world leaders and great kingdoms such as Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and Persia to accomplish his purposes. In early church history, the gospel spread rapidly around the Mediterranean because during the Greek empire, the Greek language spread everywhere. Then the Roman Empire, which followed, made travel easier and safer because of Roman roads and because the Roman Empire's law enforcement was effective. God's timing was perfect. We're familiar with biblical stories of God's wisdom in using individual persons to change world history. How, for example, God used Joseph's captivity to save his family and all of Egypt from famine. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph summarizes this when he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I also marvel at God's wisdom in an American story, which is much like Joseph's, in which a slave ends up saving God's people from starvation. In 1614, a Patuxet Native American named Tisquantum was captured in New England by a British slave trader named Thomas Hunt. Tisquantum was sold to someone in Spain, but eventually he ended up in England where he lived for several years. In 1619, he caught a ship back to New England, where he, where he found that his whole village had died of smallpox. The Mayflower ship landed nearby in 1620, the following year. And Tisquantum, whom we now usually know as Squanto, helped to save the English pilgrims from salvation, starvation. If he hadn't spoken English, and if he hadn't shown them how to plant and fertilize native crops, the Plymouth settlers may have starved just as numerous earlier settlers did. What a slave trader intended for evil, God used for good, the saving of many lives. The greatest example of God's wisdom, though, 
is in the gospel. His amazing plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. It may sound like foolishness to those who are lost, but we can see that it addresses our sins and guilt in the wisest, perfect way. In Colossians 2, 2 and 3, Paul says that he is laboring for the people, for the church in Colossae, so that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Did you get that? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. When people make up religions, they offer so-called gods that are just stronger versions of themselves, complete with sinful desires. But our God offers himself, in whose image we are made. Their so-called gods demand that in our own strength we must struggle to earn paradise by our crooked ideas of what is good. But our holy God knows that in our own strength we cannot ever earn eternal life. So he gives us his sinless son to suffer and die for our sins, thereby earning eternal life for us. If we acknowledge the truth that we are sinful and helpless, if we entrust ourselves to him, if we have faith that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for us, then God forgives our sins and credits Jesus's perfect righteousness to us. He gives us new life, adopts us as his own children, and prepares a place for us in heaven. Once God gives us this new life and fills us with his Holy Spirit, he enables us to clearly see God's infinite wisdom in rescuing us as he did through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. In the gospel, we see not only God's wisdom, but also his love, justice, mercy, wrath, sovereignty, forgiveness, and more. All of those are revealed to us in the gospel, which is God's brilliant way of rescuing us into eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For this, he also deserves infinite praise. Amen. Please join me in prayer. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. We have taken just a short time to consider your infinite wisdom and knowledge. We can learn so much more about this in your word. Thank you. Father, when we are confused by difficult situations or suffering, please remind us that you know and you understand and you care. Your love motivates you to do what is best. Your sovereignty empowers you to do what is best. And your infinite wisdom means that you know exactly 
what to do, and how and when. Teach us to entrust ourselves to you because you have rescued us and you will take us safely home. These requests we bring to you in Jesus' name. Amen.